Hi, I'm Kobe Greer. Welcome to the Resilience Podcast. Today we'll be speaking with Mike House, who has worked for 20 years as one of Australia's leading survival instructors. Welcome, Mike. Thanks, Kobe. Mike is a highly experienced speaker and facilitator and is the author of two books, Thrive and Adapt No Matter What and Unshakable, More Than Resilience. As a survival instructor, Mike has worked with groups as diverse as Youth at Risk, multinational corporations and television documentary crews on what has been described as the world's most arduous survival exercise outside of military, which was referenced by National Geographic America 1999. Mike has survived several life-threatening survival situations himself on the ocean, in tropical jungles, in raging white water, and extended sea kayak journeys. By observing and leading people in complex situations of extreme deprivation and duress, Mike has developed keen insight for how humans either panic and suffer or adapt and thrive. He sees the same behaviours in ordinary workplaces and shows people how to view their work, daily tasks, relationships and opportunities through new eyes. Mike is passionate about building resilience in teams and individuals and has worked with businesses all over Australia as well as parts of Asia. So to begin, Mike, you have a background in instructing survival. How does that translate to everyday work contexts? That's a great, that's a really <laughs> great question, isn't it? That, that usually when you mention that, there's a, a rough division of thirds in any given audience where one third says, well, that sounds fascinating. Where do I sign up? <laughs> yes. One third's like, I don't want to be anywhere near that. Keep me as far from it as possible. And one third goes, it's interesting, but so what? And the... I, th I think the relevance is that when you're instructing people in how to survive if they're lost or stranded somewhere, you're dealing with the unexpected, you're dealing with situations that are not planned and where it's definitely not going the way that you hoped it would. Mm. And there's significant pressure, you know, there's consequences. If you get things wrong, the, the most severe possible consequences, you could die. So that gives some real insights into how do people deal with that and I reckon there's some significant parallels with how life is now there's so much uncertainty out there there's a constantly changing environment the the consequences mostly are not life and death but if somebody gets stressed enough they certainly can be and the challenge I think in most of our modern contexts is that the complexity of the situations we face is such that it's really hard to draw lines between who I am and how I interact with my environment and the people around me and the results I get. Mm. When you go out into the bush, all of that gets stripped away. It's very clean. It's very clear. Mm. You get to see the results of things like how I build rapport with people, the kinds of questions I ask, the things I pay attention to, my decision-making processes how I handle conflict, all of that stuff, the results show up in a matter of hours usually and certainly no more than days. So that you get very clean lines between behaviour and results. Mm. Um, 
And also you get to see what works under deep duress, under pressure. Mm. Mm. So, so is part of your work taking individuals or groups out into the bush and mm. it, it, is that what your work is? Sorry. Yes, I haven't, I haven't actually done that for a good few years now, but at, at the time that I was involved in running those survival exercises, the most extreme thing that we did was a 10-day walk <laughs> with a soapbox-sized survival kit. You'd start with two litres of water and whatever clothes you were wearing, and that was it. And we'd uh, deliberately try to set you up with a, the greatest level of of uncertainty that we could around what was going to happen. So obviously you knew the exercise was going to start tomorrow, um, but we'd do as much as we could to sort of put you on the wrong foot and to get you out of your comfort zone. Absolutely. <laughs> and my job really was to was twofold. So the first thing was, you know, every now and then I'd get asked what my success rate as a survival instructor was and, you know, if it wasn't 100%, it would be kind of false advertising, I reckon. So part of my job was to make sure everyone came home safely. Um, but the other part was to push people as far as I possibly could into duress without sort of tripping them over into the doing my success rate no good, you know. So... My job was to create uncertainty. Right. Mm. And that would, um, and I suppose, as you say, that um, I would imagine that there would have been such a varied responses, as you Absolutely. say, either yeah. adapt or yes. survive. Yeah. And um, I would imagine some people to breaking point too. Yes, absolutely. There were, there were people who voluntarily withdrew from that exercise because they, you know, reached a point of, um, either a real or perceived physical or emotional or psychological point where they didn't feel they could continue. Uh, most people, though, the vast majority got through to the end of that 10 days and inevitably over that time you run into yourself in some pretty significant ways. You know, you're hungry, you're fatigued, you're physically exhausted, uh, you've got group dynamics going on with the people around you and... Uh, and there's this constant grinding uncertainty because we'd never really reveal what the full scope of what you were up for was until almost the end. So, yeah, yeah lots of challenge. It would have been quite a um, lots of self-realisation moments mm. too about mm, who I am, those yeah. kind of moments I would imagine mm. too. So resilience has been a topic of focus um, before and during COVID. So mm. what... What's your take on resilience then, leading from that to now your more yeah. facilitative type roles? Yes, working groups. with leaders and teams Absolutely. around building both individual and um, collective resilience. So first of all, I think uh, the one of the challenges with resilience is that it's it gets a little bit overplayed, I think. So, And I've got a few angles on that. One is that if you're a human being, you are resilient. And I think we kind of forget that. It, it goes with the territory of being human. Um, our resilience is one of the things that actually sets us apart as a species on our planet. Our, our capacity to look at changing circumstances and to adapt is a massive part of what makes humans a successful species. Mm -hmm. And to do that both individually and collectively. I think that with uh, COVID, one of the things that's happened is we've experienced that very collectively. And so we've seen those moments of pressure and potential breaking points all at once and right across the planet. You know, there's no one that hasn't been impacted. 
the the size and the scope of the impact's been quite different, dramatically different for different people in different parts of the world in different different business sectors. Mm-hmm. But we've all faced challenge. Um, the the reality is we can and will get through it. You know, that's one of the things that humans are great at. Mm-hmm. Um, what that looks like, you know, sometimes we don't know. and But our history has shown, you know, we are really, really good at sorting it out and finding a way and, and getting beyond this, both at an individual level and a collective level. Mm-hmm. The second thing is that the people around resilience, I think organisations... Uh, potentially run a risk when they say, well, what we need is we need to give our people more resilience. That's what we need. And the risk of that, I think, is that it's, it's a not so subtle message that what you are right now is not enough and uh, you need more. And particularly if you're trying to do that right at a moment of pressure, it's, it's kind of not the time. It's a bit like if, you know, you and I turned up to the beginning of our first ever ultra marathon race and we ring our personal trainer and go, I'm about to start this race, can you help me get fit? It's You've got what you've got, mate. You know, you've just got to go with that. So having somebody turn up and say, you, you're not good enough, you haven't got everything that you need, is not particularly useful in a moment of impact. The third piece, I think, is that it's a very, you know, sometimes we avoid dealing with things at a more systemic level because we say, well, if Kobe was more resilient, everything would be fine, when what we should be doing is, what are some of the elements environmentally and organisationally or at a team level that are putting pressure on us as individuals? Mm -hmm. And can we sort some of that out? You know, can we streamline processes? Uh, Can we get better at, you know, resolving conflict, at making decisions, at Mm -hmm. clarity around role, at direction setting, at purpose? And, you know, all of those things help to build collective resilience. Yeah, yeah, and I like that because it's a shared responsibility, isn't it? I agree. Because yeah. um, in our in our society, you know, because well, particularly the Western world being quite individualized, and mm. um, it can come from a, a bit of a blame culture, you know, yes. to, of the individual. So yes. I love that systemic approach where it is sort of a, it is a, a system um, responsibility rather than just the on mm. the individual. Yeah, yeah. I oh, know, interesting. that. And so when you talk about, um, I know that mindfulness is significant, you know, just doing some background reading mm. and um, uh, is significant in your work mm. as well as those pressure moments when yeah. in a, a survival situation. So mm. how do you link, um, you know, it has been well documented that mindfulness uh, is is linked to our, our sense of well-being. Mm. So how do you, you place mindfulness in regards to those pressure situations and, mm. and its importance? Yeah, well, you know, the, the evidence around mindfulness is clear and growing, isn't it? There's, there's so much data now mm. uh, essentially proving what, you know, people like monks and other traditions of mindfulness have known for, in some cases, centuries. And there's lots of different forms of it, and I think, you know, that's that's part of it, is I think that uh, we need to find versions of it that work for us. So for some people, meditation might be a great thing. For somebody else, it might be walking the dog along the river and just really being present in that place. For someone else, it might be 
you know, take a cold shower every morning and that moment of real crisp clarity and presence that comes from a, a, a bit of a physical shock to the system, swim in the ocean or something like that. Um, the, the challenge, I think, with mindfulness is, especially under pressure, there's, there's three things that I observe. So one is that if you're an action-oriented person, developing the discipline of mindfulness can be very, very challenging. You know, there's that thing of, well, what do you want me to do? It's pretty, it looks like nothing, but, you know, it's like, yeah, but what do you want me to do? And people, people shy away from that if they're action-oriented. They want to just get into, let me get my hands onto something and make something happen. So that's one challenge, still well worth developing the discipline, I think. The second is that um, in actual moments of pressure, it's not like we have the opportunity to go, oh, I've, I've just been rattled, you know, and can I take 20 minutes out of the day to meditate right now? You know, you don't get to do that in the middle of a conflict response or a, you know, a deal going sideways or another announcement about a lockdown or whatever the thing is in this moment that's creating pressure for you. It's, it's not like you can just press the pause button for any meaningful amount of time. And then the third thing is that even if you've got a really good practice, the... The, there's an erosion that happens. So, you know, we could spend 20 minutes, 40 minutes in the morning, say, meditating as an example and feel quite clear, present and focused at the end of that. And then we go through a series of transitions through the day. You know, we wrangle our partners and the pets and kids out of the household and get into traffic and get cut off in traffic because Perth people can't merge and then arrive at the arrive at the office or whatever the workplace is and we're, you know, getting slammed from one thing to another, which often involves really aggressive changes of hat and changes of energy required. So, you know, our responsibilities shift quite dramatically sometimes during the day. Mm-hmm. And that erodes with each of those transitions, our connection back to the clarity we might have had in a morning session. And so... I reckon we need things that help us to navigate those kinds of transitions and give us that sense of clarity, presence and focus when we're actually under pressure. Mm. And what what may they be? What, what are some examples or mm. strategies that you feel may help people to maintain that, um, that emotional regulation, that clarity yeah. of mind, that, mm. um, that sense of being in control? Yes. Yeah. So I developed a thing I call guerrilla mindfulness, and that's gorilla as in freedom fighter rather than big black ape. <laughs> right, with an E, not an O. <laughs> yeah, <that's right>. <laughs> <laughs> so gorillas need to be, you know, they're typically outnumbered, <laughs> outclassed, outgunned, and they need tactics where they can get in and out very, very quickly for a great result, you know, high return on investment. And that was something I kind of went looking for in in an actual moment of pressure where you find yourself rattled. What can you do that's quick, easy and and gets you very quickly back into yourself? And gorilla mindfulness has got three simple steps. So the first step is to take three rhythmic breaths and the rhythm is the important part of that. Long, deep, slow are all good, but the rhythm is the most important thing. As soon as we start to breathe rhythmically, it's a very powerful physiological and psychological uh, almost like switch in our body says if you're breathing rhythmically you're not in a fight or flight state so that sense of agitation and uh, adrenaline and all those other sort of body chemistry that goes on when we feel a little bit rattled it straight away dials that down and when you get people to do that just take three breaths even in relatively 
unstressful situations, they go, I feel calmer, I feel clearer, I feel more focused, I feel more grounded, I feel more awake. You know, there's all of those things go on and three breaths is enough to do that. Mm. So we can do that really quickly and access at any time um, and it's a very, very useful thing to do. Step two is to say how you feel and... The important thing here is to stay away from the story of the emotion. So, you know, I could say I feel angry because, you know, I, I, I've just had this budget meeting and I've got to cut my budget even though I've been under budget all year and it's everybody else that's overspent and, you know, I feel really cranky about that. The story doesn't really help because it dives us deeper into the emotion and as you would know, with your background, there's times and places where we absolutely need to take that deep dive through counselling or support with friends or whatever mechanism we've got to really explore it and unpack it and come out the other side. But it's that that is not useful in a pressure moment. So just saying what the emotion is with clarity and brevity is a really good way just to acknowledge it in the moment. So how do you feel right now? And then step three is what's my intention for right now? So if I've come out of a whole series of things that have left me potentially feeling maybe a little bit distracted and frustrated and my next thing to do is welcome a new person to the team, for example, I don't want to be carrying that frustration and tension into that welcome. So that gives me the opportunity to very quickly reset myself for what I'm doing right now the important bit about the emotion, I think, is that, you know, we uh, often will stuff emotion down in some box somewhere and tape it up and hide it in a dark corner and not deal with it. So it's definitely not saying that that's what we should do. There, And particularly if you find when you're acknowledging emotion, you're kind of stuck on one, you know, you're feeling sad or angry or fearful or anxious or whatever it is, then, you know, that's a that's a sign that we should do something about that and we should process it properly. Um, but the time for that is probably not right in the middle of the pressure the moment. Crisis, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, that's lovely. I, I really love the, that gorilla mindfulness because it, it's bringing a person, it's connecting them back to their body. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So it is connecting to, and I suppose it's the, the, the body-mind connection, isn't it? Yes. It's coming back to the breath. Yes. Um, as you say, which is a, an amazing tool for self-regulation. Very powerful. But, yeah, acknowledging the emotions. So mm. when you come into step three, mm. um, it's, you know, not avoiding or, as you say, suppressing or denying. Mm. It's going into or acting, knowing, with that knowingness of this mm. is how I'm feeling right now. Yeah. Um, whereas you're not going into it. Um, unaware, yes. and this is when we tend to shoot from the hip, Absolutely. or coming yeah. from an unclear, um, uh, yeah, from an unclear space in your mind. It can really easily acting. be reactive rather totally. than intentional. Totally, yeah. absolutely, absolutely. Mm. So, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that I can. That's that's a great tool. That's mm. a, I'm going to click that one in my head too. <laughs> And the beauty of it, it takes longer to explain than do. You know, the beauty of that is you can take three breaths, acknowledge how you feel, state your intention, 
usually that takes less than 30 seconds. So I can literally do it as I'm walking from one meeting to another or I can do it when someone cuts me off in traffic and I just need to settle and keep driving my car, you know. I can do it when I hear a bad piece of news that's kind of rattled my cage a little bit. Um, I can do it when I'm responding to a, a conflict situation where somebody's pressing my buttons a bit and it's like, look, that's that's got me cranked up a little bit, but what I need to do is have a calm conversation about what's actually going on here. Um, and it's very easy to do on the fly, either in between things or in the middle of something where something bumps you out of that for a moment. Yeah, that, mm. that's so useful. And even moving from the workspace to home. Absolutely. And, you know, yeah. uh, relating to, you know, work colleagues and then coming home to your partner and your kids and mm. that would be really a really really practical way to connect back to yourself and absolutely coming back to the present moment yeah. at that time yeah no fantastic so mark you're particularly passionate about tactics that work in pressure moments mm. what can people do to gain clarity presence and focus under pressure or I know we've touched on that a little bit. Is mm. there anything more that you'd like to add? Was there? So certainly that guerrilla mindfulness tool is is a cracker for that. Um, the other things that show up, so there's an interesting piece of research in psychology about the survivor personality, and these are people who manage to survive against the odds and, you know, whether it's a diamedical diagnosis, a bankruptcy, a relation breakup, a, uh, you know, lost or stranded in the outback or something that you, we would more typically see as survival. Prisoners of war, people working in com combat zones. Uh, the research has been conducted across all of that and there's some, there's some particular characteristics that stand out. Uh, and those are humour. So being able to have a bit of a laugh about what's going on is a, is a great way for us to address things that are really concerning and really serious but without taking them head on, which sometimes feels a little bit overwhelming. The second thing is that they're extremely good at finding reasons to be grateful. And one of the things that fascinates me about that is, you know, even when people are fairly sure they're going to die, they will still maintain that discipline of what am I grateful for. So, you know, we might not see the sunrise but I'm grateful I saw this sunset as an example. Um, I remember reading something about a couple of Jewish women who were incarcerated during uh, the Second World War by the Nazis in a concentration camp and one of them wrote about being grateful for fleas. You go, oh, why is that? And I thought, well, the, the Germans don't come to this part of the camp so often because the place is riddled with fleas, so it gives us some respite from them. And that is a fantastic way of regulating our psychology uh, the research about gratitude shows us that it actually doesn't matter whether it's something huge I'm grateful for or something small that I'm grateful for, the impact on our psychology is about the same. So I could be grateful that someone made me a nice cup of tea or I could be grateful that I'm not in some other place than WA right now, which is a pretty privileged place to be in the world in the context of COVID. Mm. Um, the magnitude of those things is really different, but the impact on my personal psychology is about the same. So we can develop the habit of looking for little tiny things all through the day that we're genuinely grateful for. The genuine bit of that's really important because our mind is very, very good at, at sort of spotting garbage, you know, the sort of hashtag insta-worthy 
so grateful, kind of rose-coloured glasses, everything's fine, nothing to see here kind of version doesn't wash with us. We, we can see through that. So we've got to be genuinely grateful, but there's always things that we can find for that. Um, and then the third thing is that they're very, very good at spotting the pieces of their environment where they have some direct control over it. So they're, they're very hesitant to be just a victim of circumstance. And I think that's a good habit that we can cultivate as well is to ask ourselves the question in pressure moments, what what's within my control in this? We often burn a lot of mental and emotional energy worrying or uh, trying to act on things that are actually outside of our control. And sometimes it feels, you know, I find for myself when I look at what's within my control Sometimes that feels liberating and sometimes it feels concerning, you know. It's liberating because it turns out to be a pretty small bucket <laughs> and it's concerning because it also turns out to be a pretty small bucket. So I wish there was more of this so I could control. Um, but that, that bias to look for where can I act that will be effective in this moment is, is something that sets people apart under pressure. Mm, that's amazing, yeah. So... To, to come to a conclusion of today's interview, Mike, mm. what's the take-home message that you would like our listeners to, to really be aware of? What, is there something that mm. is in particular that you would like to raise the awareness of our listeners for them to consider when they're in pressure moments? Yeah, so the first is, you know, back to the one of the original points we made, if you're a human being, you are resilient, you've got this. Yeah. You know, you, you can and will find a way. Resilience doesn't mean that it won't be hard. In fact, resilience is only needed when it is hard. It's a bit like courage, right? We, we only have courage when we're afraid. If fear's not, not present, then we're not being particularly courageous. So you've got this. The second thing is uh, to look for tactics that work for you that you can deploy easily. So things like guerrilla mindfulness, things like, you know, what am I grateful for? Things like what's within my control right now mm. are quick and easy questions that we can ask ourselves in pressure moments that help us get past them. And then the third thing is to surround yourself with a community of support. So, the, you know, the more people that we've got around us that care about us, that know, that know us, that will ask us how we're travelling and will notice when we're not travelling well because, you know, we don't always have it entirely within ourselves. We're, you know, we're not built to be individuals. So I think, you know, back to the beginning, there's that collective responsibility of you know, my responsibility to the collective is to be the best I can be and the collective responsibility back to me is to catch me when I haven't got it. Um, so paying a bit of attention in both those directions is worthwhile too, I think. Mm, fantastic, fantastic. It's been an absolute pleasure um, speaking with you today, Mike. Thank you for your time. Pleasure, Kobe. Thank you. Thank you.